Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. And maybe we're disappointed in Paul. And I know there's a bit of that in some quarters. You know, why didn't Paul just outlaw it? Why didn't he just say, this is no more? And I guess my point here is that what is the primary pivotal point of change? And I think it is, Matt, in the issue you brought up formerly, in unity, in koinonia, in this new fellowship or family, in the new understanding of what it means to be human. And so the unspoken thing here, and it's there when Paul says, you know, charge to me whatever is owed to Onesimus, he's imitating Christ, but specifically Christ taking up the cross. He's essentially saying, take me, not him, I think. And that is the Christian understanding. Do you think that that charge me, um, do you think that the issue at stake here is some sort of, um, what do you think uh, is the, the crime? that was committed i'd like What's to hear pop? yeah i'd like to hear other positions on this you know the i in nt Wright's uh examination of the letter to Pliny, part of the thing that Pliny does in appealing to this official who in some way was under Pliny, he says you know forgive him go ahead and you know he's done this terrible thing he said i gave him a harsh talking to and you know he's really scared now but paul nowhere says in other words there's kind of the implicit idea onesimus may have done something but paul does not put philemon in the position of forgiving onesimus am i am i correct here which is very interesting in other words you would think he would say oh forgive the poor guy you know i scared him a little bit he never says that. It's not as if, in other words, he's not giving Philemon that sort of power. I mean, is he being a little passive-aggressive whenever he says, and he uses the language, again, sort of this financial, but you know, not to mention you owe me your very soul. You know, So he's talking about whatever he's char- you know, charged me, uh, you know, whatever he's owed. You know, I don't know how he could f- f- you know, receive him back without forgiveness. I'm just saying the, the issue of forgiveness is not front and center. Right, I'm not denying that there may be something to be forgiven, but for some reason Paul never brings it up, unless I'm missing something here. Well, what I, but I think, but what you were talking about is right. You know, cosmic reconciliation implies forgiveness of debts. You know, uh, is that just too much of a stretch? Does Philemon need to be forgiven too? In other words, I think the whole situation is one in which. The slave-master situation just needs to be undone. Philemon has no power of forgiveness. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but because of what Christ has done, there is no question of what Philemon has to do. Right. This reminds me of a couple weeks ago, I think you said salvation is relational. That there, It's a new order of relationship, yeah. So... I guess one of my first thoughts of this is uh, Philemon and Onesimus, once their relationship was discovered on a new basis or reinterpreted on a new level, everything else would just flow from that. 
I think that's it. And so Paul does talk about, you know, I think the implication of Philemon receiving Onesimus back as Paul himself, you know, that, that there is, I guess, on the part of Onesimus, while he is going to have to go back and uh, be subordinate to, and this is my final point here, in regard to John Howard Yoder's picture of radical subordination. But that's what every Christian is called to, that we subordinate, we submit ourselves to one another. And I guess that Onesimus is going to have to do that. But, you know, if Onesimus is Paul, Paul's very own heart, the one who is actually carrying the letter of Colossae, and Matt, Shuk, Von Shuk, if later I want you to, your answer is very insightful. You know, that Onesimus is is named in the letter of Colossae, and this is a public affair. This isn't simply a private affair, so that the weight of the whole church is really being brought to bear on Philemon. They all know, you know, the situation. So that's good. To talk about, oh, well, privately he could have a few. I don't think that's a possibility. And just think if the if the tradition is true, Paul, if Onesimus does indeed end up becoming the bishop, right? Like that's a profound thing because now Philemon would sort of serve under, right? Like in the, in the hierarchy of the church, it's like, well, then the, the power is totally uh, inverted, you know, where now Onesimus uh, is, you know, Philemon is serving the bishop. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a profound, that's a profound reversal of the roles, you know? Wow. And but so that's I, good that it's that it's corporate. It's not. This isn't a private uh, decision that that Saint you know Paul is bringing this out before the church, and you know um, the church seems to be deciding this. Maybe maybe even some way together, corporately, like like uh, Jim was saying, you know, relationally, corporately, socially, the uh, culturally. It's a new culture. Financially, yeah. It's it's everything's changed up, and that's the point. I think. You know, once Paul says, you know, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, you know, he was useless to, to you, but now he's useful to both you and me. Uh, I'm sending you my very heart. Boy, if Paul has any authority in the church at Colossae, you know how this is going to turn out. And so... He's identifying himself with Anissima and his own deepest feelings. Wright was good on this. He says the word for charge, eloga, reckon, the same root from which Paul's most famous of reckoning righteous, reckoning yourself dead. He says we might amuse that since one possible punishment for a badly behaved or runaway slave was crucifixion himself, Paul may even be alluding to that. If he deserves the cross, then I'll take it for him. Then, just in case Philemon might think of himself, well, in that case, you owe me, Paul says, you owe me rather a lot. I'm not going to mention it, but you owe me <laughs> your very self. He mentions what he doesn't mention, <laughs> if that's a possibility. You owe me your, your own self. And so he's invested in Philemon, and he's at an equal investment in Onesima. Onesimus. Let me have some benefit from benefit from you. If you think of anything, if you think anything about me, if you have any regard for me, you know, is really what he's saying. 
So, you know, this is kind of Wright's point. He may, he's exercising a kind of authority, but it's very different than the authority of Pliny the Younger, who just says, you know, by the time Pliny the Younger finishes, just because of his position, there's no question. But Paul is in prison, and it's the authority of an apostle. It's an author the authority of Christ that is not a coercive thing. You know, really, Pliny is coercing the outcome. Paul, I don't know, you know, it's, it's whether you, at least he's giving on the view or the possibility of an alternative. And so, you know, Paul talks elsewhere about his filling up the suffering of Christ. Well, isn't this a case in point of how that works? of in reconciliation. This is a case of the Yoder's radical, you know, revolutionary subordination. There is a subordination, you know, he's, he's referencing Romans 13. We, we submit, we're subordinated to, but we're not obedient to. That is the, the governing powers necessarily. Let me do one more thing. Let me just mention the notion of homo sacer. And that is that, you know, in Giorgio Agamben's picture uh, of, you know, the which life matters, the supposed universal condition is established by the particulars of the exception. And homo sacer, you know, divine life, the very root of human polity, is structured around a necessary exclusion of one form of life, bare life or homo sacer. And he's thinking here, you know, of Aristotle, but it is the idea where bare life is structured and ordered. That is, you, you structure life, and then it becomes something more than homo sacer. It becomes the good life. And so a slave, by definition, is homo sacer. He did not merit the protection of the city. And so the power of the state or sovereign power establishes itself through the power of exclusion, homo sacer, you know, the power to strip someone of their legal status and in which they fall outside the political community, and then they're continually and unconditionally exposed to the potential of being killed. Of course, we're talking about Christ here, but we're also talking about slavery as an institution. And this power of death, you know, deciding who's outside the city. Well, that establishes the life of the city. This describes who killed Christ. You know, let this man die that the nation might be preserved, that the nation might be saved. He dies outside the city, beyond law. You know, he's there really is no law that applies to the slave or to Christ, even beyond religion, and he's reduced to homo sacer, to just bear life on the cross. And so Christ, as the exception, exposes the basis upon which inclusion and universality are constructed. I believe Onesimus is the record of one who stands where Christ stood. Here is Homo Saker. Here's someone who is, you know, not fully human. And yet in the new or world order, which Christ established, the whole system, the, you know, what we're seeing in this letter, the whole thing is coming to his aid and affirming his humanity, a world that did not exist before Christ brought it into existence.
And so the point of the gospel is that the universal is not to be had apart from the particular. I did a blog a while back when everybody was talking about Black Lives Matter. You know, it was, oh, no, we can't, we ha you know, it's everybody's life. It sounded a lot like a Gombin's point. That is the most pertinent particular. You know, it may be, have been black lives. Uh, at one time, it was Christ. Well, he was lynched outside the city. And so in John Milbank's description, Christ as homo saker is the exception beyond exception. He undoes this entire uh, notion of homo saker. In Niebuhr, you know, this is the, the debate between Richard Niebuhr, the, the picture of somebody like uh, Yoder, or the Niebuhr is arguing for the universality of the gospel. And of course, in arguing for the universality of the gospel, what he's missing, you know, the idea of these eternal truths, he's missing, he overlooks in his, what is called Christian realism, the particular. That is, in the case of the United States, you know, in the period of Richard Niebuhr, in which people are still being lynched, people are not seeing the, the, the case of black lynching. Here is an example, a modern example of homo saker, and really, you know, the whole notion of blue lives matter, you know, it's sort of the equivalent. Well, of course, in Rome, what they would say, you know, it's not, it's not just Jesus' life matters, Pharisee lives matter. Roman lives matter. Roman soldier lives matter. Well, yeah, that may be true, but of course, in saying that, what you're doing, you're ignoring the homo sacer, the one, the exception, the exception to the rule. And so that's the picture here, that we've got to embrace the particular together with the universal. And for some reason, just thinking about this, it um, made me think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, letter from Birmingham jail. And that's kind of what I framed part of this around. But in order for both parties to participate in reconciliation, they both have to, both have to see the value in doing so. Although letter from Birmingham jail is uh, mainly a defense of Dr. King's nonviolent tactics and an appeal to those Christian ministers who were calling for a halt to the nonviolent protests that were driving the civil rights movements rather than strictly an appeal to reconciliation, there is no denying that the language of reconciliation is how he frames his letter. In his opening statements, Dr. King appeals to the white ministerial community by recognizing their sincerity and their goodwill and language that is similar uh, to Philemon's epistle. And I, I didn't mention it, but I'm sure y'all all know he was responding to a letter that they had published um, several weeks previously calling for an end to the demonstrations. Um, but he started off a letter from Birmingham jail by saying, but since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Paul recognizes the best in Philemon by stating he hears of his faith and love. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. These two examples demonstrate how important it is to see the opposing side, not as an other, but as a human being, even when you feel that they are in the wrong through the deception of culture or even just in being deceived. The rest seems to rely primarily on humility. 
there is more than this, but without humility, it is impossible to forgive, uh, which is the release the uh, releasing the other party from debt or repent, which is changing your attitude and behavior. In many situations, this will be required from both sides, as even in situations where there's massive injustice on one side, the response to that injustice may require the same process to lead to reconciliation. Think of Philemon and Onesimus. Although the slavery of Onesimus is what we focus on, it seems that there might have been some issue, perhaps theft, that Paul alludes to, and that there might be a debt to forgive. Even if the offended or offending party won't respond to your attempts at reconciliation, the change in heart you must necessarily undergo would seem to be something that would increase peace generally for all who encountered you. Yeah, I, I really like the comparison there. I guess if the, if the White uh, Pastors Association were in charge at the time of Paul, they would say to Paul, this is too soon, too fast. <laughs> yep. It's too much. You know, Let's wait on this. And unfortunately, that attitude seems to have in some way taken hold up to <laughs> uh, the modern time. I think the gospel succeeds uh, and is always in the process of succeeding. But I think we can also point out where the fullness of the gospel has often not been embraced by the very ones who have carried it. And that too fast, too soon sort of mindset totally fails to under, to recognize the apocalyptic nature of the gospel, right? That it breaks in uh, by surprise. It's here and now. It's not later. It's not, you know, it's it's radical. It's a radical inbreaking into the present order and undoing and a, a restitution, a rebuilding uh, that begins, uh, you know, here and now. Um, but that's always, I guess, right, that we're, we're, we're always up and against that sort of traditionalism or conservatism can't be the right word. It, yeah, it is, uh, it is a maintaining of the status quo. And I don't think uh, that that was kind of the attitude that, and has been the attitude. The civil rights movement was up and against, but the history of the church in, you know, uh, in accepting slavery, you know, in some way was that insidious idea gained a hold. While I was uh, driving in my car this week and thinking about that question, um, the Chris Tomlin song, um, where he does Amazing Grace and then follows it up with My Chains Are Gone, I've Been Set Free. Are y'all all familiar with that kind of contemporary Christian praise song, whatever? I can tell this class is getting to me because as I, as I listened to that song, I thought, well, that's all about you, with that your chains have been set free, but it seems like, you know, the Amazing Grace was written by a guy that was literally a slave runner. And, and to turn that around and say, well, my chains have been set free, you know, because of what you did for me, Jesus, and not to, to actually recognize that, that this guy was sorry that he hadn't set all of those slaves free. You know, it seems like that, it seems like that addendum to that song should have been, your chains are gone because I'm going to do something to help you, as opposed to, oh, great, uh, you know, I get pie in the sky by and by, or whatever uh, that it seems to be alluding to. So, you sort of ruined that song for me, Paul, as I was driving in the car. But <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll find that that happens more and more uh, as these classes progress. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly when John Newton 
wrote Amazing Grace. But, you know, Newton himself, he had become a Christian and did not quit his job as a slave trader. So there was a, a moment in which it didn't just automatically kick in, which I think, you know, is kind of, uh, it, it, it's sort of shocking, I would think, you know, or from our perspective, that this is obviously pertains to the reality of slaves, real world slaves. Yeah. And maybe that's the argument, Paul, you know, that um, it is a progressive unfolding, whether it's, you know, uh, in our own lives of um, freedom from our own personal slavery uh, of sin and death or of the church's, um, you know, social sort of, you know, takes on different, you know, uh, terrible situations. In other words, like it seems like this thing's unfolding in a way where we're realizing the gravity and the power of the gospel, uh, not only in our own lives, but perhaps corporately, although sometimes you got to wonder. Yeah, I, I, I understand in regard to us as individuals, but it also seems that it's taken a couple of millennia for a lot of this seemingly, and maybe it'll take many more millennia for the fullness of the gospel to bear the fullness of its fruit. I think it has borne fruit, and it is bearing fruit, but I think that obviously for many Christians, the implicit racism uh, you know, involved in their nationalistic Christianity, and so many, uh, you know, the, the patriarchy, uh, just the abuse of the, the stranger and the foreigner at the borders. You know, we can just go through that just seemingly Christian principles that should be obvious to us all. In some way, the form of the gospel, maybe that we've received, those things don't aren't obvious to us. Maybe it's like David Rawls said when we were reading uh, the patient ferment of the early church. You know, he said that we might still be the early church. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, it's still kind of crazy that when you think of some of this stuff, it's like, how could you know, how could this have not have already changed? And that was part of my disappointment. I, uh, you know, to me, I don't think there's any question. I really don't think there's anything controversial about how radical Philemon is. And yet the history of interpretation of the book is just so depressing. You know, why, you know, why didn't, why aren't they seeing this? Even Origen, Matt, your hero, he uses the illustration, you know, I can't remember what the topic was, but he says, you know, obviously when we beat our slaves, uh, he uses that illustration seemingly without the sensitivity of recognizing the hideous nature uh, of slavery. But he's, he's not an exception. That is just the case of many of the early church fathers. They didn't, they didn't seem to recognize the, the revolutionary nature of the gospel. And no matter, you know, and then I guess that goes, that's a good reminder that no matter how progressive we might imagine ourselves, right, that, we're, that people are going to look back on even forging plowshares or whatever in us in our group and say, how did they not see this? How did they not get this? This is so clear. This is, you know... Uh, this is right in line with exactly everything that they were saying, but they they were, you know, sort of not saying this. 
how could they have missed this? You know, so we really are all a product of our of the institutions that are around us and our, um, you know, the social orders and things like that. There's no escaping it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the Walter Wink part of this that, that he's talking about, you know, the log in the brother's eye or, you know, the splinter in the brother's eye is from the log in your own, that you're blinded. We're blinded. And I think sin does that to us. It blinds us to what is right, right in front of us. The first question, as you read Paul's letter to Philemon, consider the, the ways that Paul encourages Philemon to sacrifice his own cultural interests. What is Paul undoing? Paul is undoing the grounding of hierarchy in anything other than Christ. In particular, as it pertains to Philemon and Onesimus, Paul is undoing relationship grounded in law and economic rights. Under these legal and economic standards, Philemon owned a property interest in the person of Onesimus. Philemon had the right to control his labor, the right to the ben economic benefit of his labor, and the right to control his body and well-being. Philemon's rights to and against uh, Onesimus were enforceable under Roman law. Philemon's ownership of him was a private economic relationship in the sense that no other person had the legal right to interfere with Philemon's ownership interests. Indeed, in, to society and the law, such interference would be unnatural and unjust because Philemon's status over his slave was normative. Philemon was by nature a master and his slave was by nature a slave. There is no difference between the ought and the is in their relationship. For Paul, Philemon's legal and economic claims to the person of Onesimus are a vestige of the world that was pa is passing away. Paul undoes Philemon's status over his slave in several ways. First, for Paul, Philemon's claim to ownership is not a private economic matter or legal relationship outside the purview of other persons. Philemon's claim to be a master is, is a matter for the whole community. It is taken up in this letter from Paul and Timothy, addressed not merely to Philemon, but also to, you have to forgive my pronunciation, Atphia, Archippus, and the church in Philemon's house. It's also a matter discussed by Paul and his co-workers as reflected in his setting greetings from Epaphras, Mark, Astrochus, Damas, and Luke. Philemon's claims over Onesimus, therefore, are not a private affair reserved for Roman courts. They are a matter for the church. Second, for Paul, Philemon's claim against his brother is based on a false understanding of authority and power. Paul performs what it means to exercise true authority and power in imitation of Christ. He, he does so in, in the opening of his appeal to Philemon. There, Paul declares the authority to command Philemon in matters regarding Onesimus, but instead, he appeals to Philemon on the basis of love. This closely parallels Origen's understanding of God's almightiness and on first principles. Origen argues, in summary form, that God bears the title Almighty because acting through Christ, while he has power over all things, God acts by reason and wisdom and not by force and necessity. So here Paul performs what it is to imitate Christ. God is almighty because he has power to possess all things through force and necessity, but instead through Christ acts by wisdom and reason. Paul, an apostle and a prisoner for Christ, has the power to order Philemon's relationship with Onesimus by command, but instead acts by appealing on the basis of love. Philemon and his church should see that to be in Christ, 
Philemon must forfeit his legal and economic and social power over his slave and instead act towards him through wisdom and reason and love. Finally, Paul undoes Philemon's status over Onesimus by subverting the assumption that slavery has anything to do uh, with their nature or the essence of who the slave is. Paul describes Onesimus as his son, brother, Paul's own heart, and the person to be welcomed as Paul would be welcome. He is also Philemon's brother in flesh and in Christ. As a member of the church, Paul asserts Philemon's only claim to Onesimus is as a brother, not as a master. The point is emphasized in the way Paul consistently addresses all the other members of the church. For Paul, in this letter, Timothy is our brother, Philemon is our dear friend and co-worker, Paul's brother, Aphia is our sister, Archippus is our fellow soldier, uh, Epiphras, who, is sent in, uh, who, is, who sends his greetings, is my fellow prisoner in Christ, Mark, Damas, and Luke, who also send their greetings, are my fellow workers. There are no masters or slaves, only brothers, sisters, friends, co-workers, and fellow soldiers and prisoners. I, I really liked your answer, and, and uh, did everybody catch? Uh, Solidarity. I liked it. Yeah. As I understand it, Onesimus is one of the carriers of the letter of Colossians. Uh, he is a messenger. You know, he's he's an apostle of the apostles. So, yeah, and that you captured that. Here is this group coming to the church in Colossae, and you can't hardly talk about this issue as a private affair. It is a public affair. I think we're all tempted to coercion, even, you know, even in places where we may have the power to exercise coercion. The idea is, yeah, but that's not the, uh, that's not the mode you should operate in whether it be as a father or, you know, a leader or whatever, whatever position that is. Now, you may disagree me, with me a little bit on, uh, with uh, very little kids, there may be a bit of coercion that is necessary, but as a child is raised up, I think that it becomes a, uh, that part of imparting their humanity to them is that, in fact, it, uh, the, that the coercive nature of the, father-child or parent-child relationship is gradually undone. Is that too much, Matt, as a, as a father struggling with? No, as a father of a teenager, I'd say to be a parent is to suffer as your child realizes and you realize he's his own person. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and every parent comes to that realization one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They should be their own person. Okay, I just broke Paul's appeal to Philemon into a, a model or a structure to look over as a reference. First of all, he expressed a general thankfulness and appreciation to uh, Philemon, and he pointed out some common ground that they both share. And then he reduced it to a specific instance, how he appreciated other persons. And um, then he brought in the idea that he, he's not—he's not referring to rights and law and obligations and promises and uh, the legal facet of the legal facet of his appeal. But he, he skipped right over to uh, the basis or foundation of love. And again, he like spirals around and he lets go of any 
authority or coercion or power or leverage and returned again to like a positive focus or an outcome. So he seems like to repeat and he's like stepping back and forth, saying out of legalism into a relational um, fountain or relational impetus of love. And he, he lets go of his control. Uh, he lets go of, the, of, any, of any control is over to Philemon. And uh, I said he describes the outcome as a win-win. There's nothing to lose because I'll take care of any of the damages. So he places Philemon's own interest at his disposal. He gave him the freedom to uh, step out towards Onesimus, and he expressed confidence that the other person, that Philemon would choose the outcome that benefits everyone. His momentum in this letter, he even goes on to say, oh, by the way, uh, fix me up a nice place to stay when I come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's you know. coming. And, and maybe that, yeah, there's a kind of implicit, oh, I'm on my way, and I hope these things yeah. are carried out. In, in the back of my mind, I brought this out. I don't know if you all watched the lecture or the discussion between um, Jason and I. And Matt Von Schuch, I'm thinking of in particular, that there is, you know, obviously we would like that the law reflect, you know, the idea that is captured in the Constitution of equality that is obviously not there, is not given to all. That in some way we do want, in other words, a kind of legal reinforcement, but I guess that what is being demonstrated is that in some way, you know, throughout Paul's gospel, the law is very often thought to be primary. I mean, that's the I think that's the Jewish mistaken understanding, and I think that's the sinful understanding that the Jews are an archetype of. Oh, that if we could only uh, have this, you know, in in law, in if we could have it in some way instituted in that form. And I think what we're seeing in Philemon in the very mode of the gospel is that that, in fact, is made secondary, and that there is something more primary than that, that there is always going to be an underside or a perverse side of the law in which the law is open to the kind of abusiveness of interpretation that is, in fact, given to the book of Philemon, that there is a kind of missing of the koinonia of the gospel, of the very point of the gospel, in a kind of imagined understanding of the social order, in some way having an un, an enduring and unmovable primacy. And so I, I don't quite know, you know, that, that we obviously want human rights to be encoded and protected, but I think we also recognize, yeah, but that's never that's never really sufficient in and of itself. Have I said that accurately or or enough i'm glad you said that paul because that really that really comes across in the text where paul says that he does he wants to leave basically their free will intact yeah can't remember how he phrases it yeah that puts a character to it that really conveys what you just said in other words i may be saying something here i'm not uh the historically i think that things could have gone down very differently in the united states in regard to the abolition of slavery, that it could have gone down very much like it went down in England with William Wilberforce, 
there was a shift there, very different. You know, if you take those two cases and compare and contrast them, it's kind of an interesting case study. That there certainly, on the part of Wilberforce, was a kind of manipulation of the law, and that's a, a kind of necessary part of it. But I think we also recognize on this end, yeah, but that in and of itself uh, is inadequate and not complete. And Brian, what is this? I guess it didn't show up. I was trying to send y'all a picture I got on the streets of Montreal tonight. Oh. We walked by, walked oh. by a place called the Philemon Bar. Oh, oh really? <laughs> okay. All right. It was a very inviting place, which we did not find our way into, but it certainly was apropos. Uh, very fitting. Very fitting. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm sure that it's a, a group of uh, equals that are everyone's everyone they know you they know your name as soon as you walk in <laughs> jonathan welcome hello sorry i'm late no. uh yeah i don't do it again <laughs> i i asked jonathan to come tonight uh and uh to tell you a little bit about the class that he's going to teach and but jonathan you want to uh, give us a little bit of, uh, give us a bit of an advertisement here about sure. what um, So I uh, started teaching this class at my parish and shared it with Paul, and I thought maybe he would teach it, but he was so kind to invite me to teach it. And here's the gist of the class. Uh, Paul, would you, what is the title that it goes by for you? It's like Theology and... Marginalization and justification. Yeah, that's right. The and the concepts that I'm working with here are basically there's Christ on the one hand, who gives his life for the other, and then there's empire on the other hand that will kill and oppress for its own ends. But in this class, we will construct. That's not right. We will develop a self understanding of a Christian identity derived from the witness of Jesus' self-sacrificing life and death that fosters peace and justice while opposing violence and oppression. We will reflect on our own social locations, biases, and our relationships in our communities and world to discover where God is calling us to overcome evil with good, just as we believe Jesus overcomes evil by his death and resurrection. And so the, the class then explores this idea of how does one inculcate an anti-empire Christian identity within themselves through several different dimensions. Start off by thinking in um, sort of a cosmological context, and the readings that go along with this are a lot from the Catholic social tradition, social teaching tradition, as well as documents like Pope Francis of Laudato Si', making these connections for the whole world. Then there is uh, thinking about this in Christian history, the, his the history of mission, uh, sort of where has Christendom been at fault? Where has Christianity seemed inseparable from empire? Then how has this played out culturally so that there's even cultural forms of imperialism, subjugation, oppression, etc.? And this is um, in biblical studies is where it's most pronounced or at least easiest to point out. Uh, then looking at scripture itself, how can we read scripture with strategies that are opposed to, you know, empire is just a shorthand here, I guess, for like 
being opposed to racism, being opposed to violence, being opposed to, uh, you know, misogyny, etc. And then, so readings from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, thinking theologically, how, how um, should everybody open themselves up to the theological task and sort of broadly conceived along the lines even i like i think this is carl bart who says it's not just that theology is god talk but creating a space that allows god to talk to us or into our world into our lives and then uh, wrapping up what sort of solutions well if we're inculcating a christian identity within our own lives or developing a self-understanding of the christian identity that's going to deal with spirituality so how how do we stand in solidarity with other spiritualities what does that even about and then finally ending up with well what does it mean then to be able to share the gospel which is the good news in a pluralistic world uh, in which the gospel is still actually good news and that's so in other words the class goes through several strategies of thinking about what does it mean to be a christian and then how do we be a christian in the world in such a way uh, that combats marginalization and injustice that's what i got where do i sign up talk to paul <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to sign up too i'd like to take the class as we're concluding this class discussing philemon this is kind of a making practical and expanding upon similar sorts of topics. Paul, you're right. going to join as a student? Is that right? That would be fantastic. I, if I can, if Jonathan will permit me. Huh? I think as a as an interlocutor. Okay, yeah. Oh, no, no. Isn't that what everybody is? It's just, yes, an interlocutor. Okay. <laughs> we'll all be your interlocutors, yes. You're messing with the hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How can you uh, oppressively teach a class on anti-imperialism? <laughs> All right. Next week is the uh, everybody's doing their project. Jonathan, you're doing a description of the group you're going to start at the hospital there on uh, nonviolence. Yeah, I've started working on on a couple of different aspects of it, and I've got our chaplain really interested in it. I think I think it'll probably go a couple of different directions, but I ordered eight or nine copies of Wendell Berry's um, "Blessed Are the Peacemakers." I don't know if you've ever read that little book, but it's a wonderful little book, and you can read it in a half hour. And I thought that'd be a good place to start our kind of small group discussion about that because there's some folks that are not anywhere near as far down this road as as I've come just from listening to your your uh, sermons and, and uh, reading your blog for the last year or two. And I thought that'd be a good introduction just to get some conversation started. Great. Great. You can give us some idea of what that looks like. I don't know specifically yet. yet although I was thinking about, I mean, all I do all day long is feel, I feel like deal with people who are in disputes. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I didn't want to be a family law lawyer, so I became an estate planner. And it turns out, instead of dealing with spouses and fights, I just deal with siblings and fights all the time. <laughs> so I, I want to just think about and address, um, you know, in the context of you know, uh, of family planning in that way, um, what a reconciliatory practice would look like. Okay. All right. I'll look forward to hearing the fullness of your projects next week, and we'll just devote next week to that and any any other questions that you might have over the term. Thanks, guys. All right. God bless. Good night, Good night. all. Good night.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.